We've all had those moments, those moments where we finally have to do something for ourselves. I specifically think about those moments when we're used to our parents doing something for us, and then they tell us, well, we have to do it on our own. Now, maybe something simple as making some food for yourself, but I recall personally that moment when I was 13, when my father said to me, you can back the pickup out of the driveway so you can shoot baskets yourself. Well, there was a problem there. I didn't know how to drive a stick, so I put, didn't put the clutch in when I tried to start it, and I, it ended up I didn't shoot baskets that day, and so I got a lesson on how to drive a stick. But regardless, that was a rite of passage. In that case, I was excited to move on, to be able to do something myself. But those moments, when someone starts doing something on their own, can also become a moment of lament. You might be a little upset that you have to make that sandwich for yourself because mom isn't going to do it for you anymore. Maybe the lament comes from the parents who can't believe their child is old enough to do something on their own already. Regardless, these moments can be filled with pride and they're often a rite of passage of sorts where we become more independent. Now this is usually, it's usually a good thing. When we think about doing something on our own, that doesn't translate very well for us in the Christian faith. We are to become more dependent on Jesus. And any attempts to do something on our own is rebellious and is actually contrary to the gospel that lets us know that everything has been done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we come to our passage today, we're going to see that this is the theme that is there. We're going to unpack it. We've seen a lot in the life of Abram so far. We have seen successes, and we have seen some failures. And we're going to see a failure again next week. But one thing that we have seen over and over is an overriding theme. God is faithful to his promises. He keeps them. Abram, Abram has been told that through him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And Abram believes that promise. Now just last week, we saw Abram had the opportunity for riches. The king of Sodom was going to give him all these possessions, but what did Abram do? He refused them. He didn't want it to be said that some earthly king had made him prosperous. Instead, he is trusting God. He is not going to take the promised land for himself with his own army and with his own riches and by his own power. Instead, Abram is trusting that God will keep his promise. And as we come to our passage today, we're going to see the continuation of this idea. We need to remember that while, that, that while we're blessed with these chapter breaks and these numbers and verse numbers, chapter numbers and verse numbers, those weren't there in the original language. Now, there's, there is a break in the story, but there is a flow to this story that we want to make sure that we don't disrupt as we come to it today. We need to remember that the story that we read today is to be read in light of what we saw last week, Abram rejecting the riches of the king of Sodom and receiving the blessing of Melchizedek. And so we approach the text in that way. And before we do that, though, I want us to stop. I want us to break this 15th chapter of Genesis down into our three points for today. 
so that we can digest the story and, and it'll help us work to understand and apply the truths in it to our lives. So the first thing that we're going to see today is that God confirms the covenant that he's made with Abram. Now, it's been a while since the initial promise was made to Abram, and he was told to leave his country. Several years have passed since Abram left his life of idolatry, and he believed the promise that God made to him. And after the blessing that Melchizedek gave him, we see that God comes to Abram and confirms the promise. God is the God of Abram. Secondly, we see that Abram believes God. And we're going to see that Abram has questions about this promise. But when God speaks, Abram trusts God and believes that he will keep the promise that was made to him. And we read something very important. This trust that God will, this trust that God will do what he has promised to do. Abram believes it by faith and it is counted to him as righteousness. He is righteousness. He is righteous because he believes God by faith. And lastly, we're reminded that the covenant rests not on the faith that Abram has, but on the faithfulness of God. As 21st century American folk, we we read this passage and we are easily confused by the last part of this story because there's a strange ritual of cutting animals in halves. But the ritual that happens there is significant. It is really important. And God uses it to show us that the covenant is about him. The covenant is about his grace. The covenant is dependent upon the God who made the stars. It's not about saving ourselves, but it's about a God who is faithful. And so we drop into this passage today, and our first point is going to be centered around just that first verse from our passage. As I mentioned, we need to understand the flow of the text here. And the text tells us that when it, and when it tells us that after it's, that it says after these things, it's telling us that there's a connection to the previous story. It's just telling us about, to, be, to remember Melchizedek and the king of Sodom. And it's important for us to understand what had happened. And so we need to remember what went down in that story Abram gave a tenth of everything he had to Melchizedek, and then he refused to take the spoils of war that were rightly his. He refused to take them. He gave them back to the king of Sodom. He was going to get riches. He wasn't going to get riches and wealth from an earthly king, and he wasn't going to take the promised land with an army of his own. He was going to trust God. He was going to trust that God would bless him. And so it is that context that we slide into this verse. Abram has given up an awful lot of stuff, and God comes to him and lets him know that he will be his shield. He will be his reward. He's just passed up the shield that he had of having more power, of having more people in his control. That was real protection. To have more power, to have more people, to have more fame— For him, that would have been protection. But Abram has given up adding people to his own little kingdom. There's a lot of protection that comes from that kind of power, but instead, he's going to trust in the promise of God. And what does God say? That he will be his shield. 
God will be the protection that he needs. Abram has forsaken the earthly way of power and influence and instead has trusted in God and in his protection. But Abram has also passed on wealth. And God promises not only to be his shield, but also his reward. As I said, Abram passed on the things that this world had to offer him. And now God is confirming to him that this is the right decision. You did the right thing, Abram. God is telling Abram that, he's, that he is so much better than anything that the world will offer him. God is Abram's reward. He has forsaken the things of the world and instead has chosen, chosen to trust in God. Now, I think that this is a great example for us, but it's hard for us to do. I believe we intellectually acknowledge the truth of what we see here in the life of Abram, but it's hard for us to surrender the security that comes from the things that the world has to offer us. Now, obviously, our circumstances are much different from Abram's. He had a specific promise from God that, that he was trusting in. But we see here that there's a general truth in this that is important to us too. It is far too easy for us to be comfortable with the things of the world instead of trusting that in Christ we actually have our reward. We want what the world offers, but we have already been given something far better in the salvation that God has blessed us with. When the allure of the world comes to us, we can hear these words that were said to Abram, fear not, I am your shield and your very great reward. We need to remember that. Abram was looking to something in the future. Now we have Christ, and so our reward is in him, and it is great. And in this passage, we see God confirming his promise to Abram, and he has confirmed his, his covenant to us in Jesus Christ. And in the gift of the indwelling Holy Spirit, we hear the word and believe by faith, and we have confirmation that he will never leave us or forsake us. We have confirmation that we have eternal salvation in Christ. Well, as I said, Abram's circumstance is different. But the idea is the same. And we see how we are to respond as we move to our second point and we see that Abram believes God. Now, the point here is that Abram believes God, but the first part of this section of verses might have you wondering, is that really the case? Does Abram really, does he really believe God? Well, we have to read to the end of it to see that Abram does. But we start out here with Abram basically saying, okay, God, it's great and all that you're my shield, and I get that you're my reward. But if I remember the promise you made to me correctly, it was that I'm going to have a lot of descendants. And right now, I've got none. It's been 10 years or so. I left my home like you asked, God. I went off on my own. I left idolatry, forsaken those false gods that were in my father's house, and just in case you didn't notice, I'm lacking a child. I made my will out the other day, you know, because I'm old, and Eliezer of Damascus is, is my heir, and he's just a servant in my house. God, you promised me a child. Where is he? 
You've promised me offspring, and all I have to inherit this wealth you've blessed me with are servants. In other words, Abram is asking, what in the world is going on here, God? The promise is great, but it doesn't seem to be coming to fruition. Well, despite Abram's assessment of the situation, God has something to say. He informs Abram that Eliezer would not be his heir, but that a child of his very own would be the one who would receive the inheritance. And then God gives Abram a visual representation of what that promise is going to look like. He takes him out and shows him the night sky. Now let's remember, there weren't streetlights back then. And we think we've all been someplace where there's no light pollution, and you know how many stars there are. So imagine that scene, not like you're trying to find a star in the middle of Sioux Falls or another city. Imagine the number of stars that he would have seen. And God informs Abram that just as the stars are in the heavens, so will his offspring be. Take a moment and put yourself in Abram's sandals here. You're childless. You're old. Your wife has been barren your whole life. And now, at her advanced age... Her womb is dead. Yet God shows you the stars in the heavens and informs you that your offspring will be just as numerous as the stars. I would like to think that I would believe that promise. But wouldn't it be hard? Wouldn't it be hard? Abram has no offspring. Nothing. But God is telling him that when he looks up at the sky at night, he should expect his offspring to be as numerous as the stars that he sees. And there's something significant that we need to remember as we think about this visualization of this promise from God. Remember where we've been in Genesis. What have we learned about God? I've been bringing out the emphasis on God being a covenant keeper, but we just have to also remember the power and majesty of God that Genesis spells out for us. Remember when God made the stars, he placed them there. That's the God that's being talked about here. The stars that Abram is going out to look at were made by God. And if he has the power to create every last one of those stars in the sky, then he certainly is capable of giving Abram offspring. And notice that this infinite, this powerful God uses the finite nature of Abram to draw out just how amazing this promise is. He tells Abram to look toward the stars and number them, and and then look at what he says. If indeed you can count them. It's kind of saucy, isn't it? Look at them all. Count them. You can't, can you, buddy? Right? Uh, God is saying, I made them, and you can't even count how many there are. Abram can't do this. And so what is he doing? He's trusting God, and we're going to see that that is what he does. He believes God, and we see an important phrase here. We read it in in the New Testament multiple times. We heard it in Galatians this morning. It's in Romans. Abram is considered righteous. It is credited to him as righteousness in the eyes of God, not because of any works that he has done, but because he has faith, because he trusts the promise of God. He is righteous because he abandons doing it his own way. And instead, he trusts in the faithfulness of God. 
As I said, this is used in the New Testament to help us understand our salvation in Christ, that we are not saved by what we do, but instead by trusting in the righteousness of Christ in our place. Saving faith, saving faith believes God and what he says he will do. Saving faith says, I can't save myself, and so I'm going to put my trust in Christ. Saving faith abandons trying to get to the destination on your own and instead trust that God brings you safely to the destination that he has promised. Well, so far, we've seen that God confirms his promise, and even though he has doubts, Abram believes God. And now we're going to see the truth that this covenant rests on God as we finish up this passage and see our final point today. We see the Lord reminding Abram of who he is, and he's going to give him this land. And Abram's response is interesting, considering we have just seen that Abram believes God, right? We've seen that he's, he's trusting in this, and it's credited to him as righteousness. It seems as though he understands that God's made a covenant with him. And he's looking for a covenant sign to conform the pro- to the promise. And so that is just what God gives Abram. He gives him a visual representation of how he is going to receive this. Now, this whole thing is bizarre for us as 21st century folks. Let's be honest. Well, well, around here, we're a little more used to things that are are not exactly sanitized. You know, we're not the kind of people who think that meat comes from the store, you know. We get this a little bit better because we live around agricultural stuff, but even for us, This is a bloody scene. Way bloodier than I think we can even imagine because Abram didn't have modern methods of cutting to do what he did. He brings all these animals together and cuts them in half. But it would not have been a nice and easy, clean cut. I'm guessing this took a while and everyone involved was very bloody and messy. So what is going on here? What what is this covenant? Well, in the ancient Near East, there was a ceremony when a king and someone else would come into a treaty together. And what they would do is they'd do what we read here. They would would cut animals in half like this, and they would divide them. And then the two parties of the treaty would then walk through the halves of the animals. And this is to visually represent an agreement between them. If I break this covenant, if I break this promise, then may what happened to these animals happen to me. Like I said, this is bloody. Imagine walking through this and you're thinking, boy, I sure hope I can keep this promise because I don't want to look like that, right? This is a big deal. Now, in, in many cases, it wasn't both parties that walked through. This actually would be more of a threat, Just one party would walk through. The weaker king, the weaker one, would walk through by themselves as an acknowledgement of the power that the greater king had over them if they don't do what they said. But something very different, in fact, happens here. It's very unique what we see here in this passage. Before the ritual occurs, we see that Abram falls asleep 
and a thick and dreadful darkness falls over him. Now the idea here is that Abram is coming into the presence of God here. God is powerful. He is great and holy, but Abram is not. And so the the darkness and the gloom that comes over him is Abram feeling the presence of a holy God, and he is a sinner. He's standing, well, sleeping, on holy ground because God's presence is there. And so there's darkness and gloom because it's terrifying. It's absolutely terrifying for sinners to be in the presence of God. And that's the dread that is coming over Abram. It's a dread of his sinfulness in the presence of Almighty God. It's the same idea we find in Isaiah 6, if you're familiar with that story, when Isaiah is in the presence of God. There's fear here. And when God comes to Abram, we read a prophecy that would have meant a lot to the original audience of this book. Abram's descendants are going to experience slavery, but then they will come into the land that was promised And that would have been important for the ancient Israelites as they were told this story and they told it to their children. Because yes, they were in slavery, but God is going to bring us back to the land that he promised to our father Abraham. So this prophecy is important. But the heart of the passage is in verses 17 through 21. Remember what I said about this covenantal ritual. At times, both the parties of the treaty would pass through the halves, And other times, the weaker party would pass through by himself. But we're going to see something astounding today as we look at what happens when God makes a covenant with someone, when he makes this covenant with Abram. Remember, Abram is asleep. He isn't moving. And so what happens here? A smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appears and passes between the pieces of the animals. Now, this smoking pot and this fire is a symbol for the presence of God. Remember how God was represented at night when the Israelites left Egypt for the promised land? Remember that story from Sunday school? A cloud by day and what by night? A pillar of fire. And so what we see here is a representation of the presence of God. What's happening here? Is the weaker one going between the halves? No. God himself is passing through the halves of the animals. God is making the covenant, and he's putting the curse of that covenant upon himself. In my opinion, this is is one of the most amazing passages in the entire Old Testament. This is a clear expression of the covenant of grace that God makes with his people. Abram's in a trance. He's asleep. He isn't moving at all. And what's happening? God, the infinitely powerful one, who is in the ultimate position of authority, passes through the halves. And he's saying to Abram and to us that if he doesn't keep his promise, may what happened to the animals happen to him. May the curse on these animals come upon me. And what we see here is that the promise of God is sure because it rests on him and him alone. Abram is asleep. He's doing nothing. And the God who cannot lie is passing through the halves of these animals. God keeps his covenant. 
and we are his covenant people. His promises are sure. This is a picture for you and I of the gospel. We receive salvation by grace through faith. We were in a worse state of affairs than Abram, honestly. He was asleep. But what does the New Testament tell us about ourselves? We were dead in our trespasses and sins. Yet what did God do for us in Christ? He came to earth. He lived the perfect life that you and I failed to live. He died to bear the wrath of God for our sin and rose again to secure eternal life for you and I. And finally, he ascended into heaven to intercede for us. All while you, all while you and I were asleep. Well, we were dead in our sin. Like Abram, we received the benefit of this covenant made with us, not by anything that you and I do, but by faith. Just like Abram, we believe God, and it is credited to us as righteousness. We don't earn our standing before God, but instead it is a gift from the God who does everything to keep his covenant and bring his people to himself. And this truth, this truth defines who we are. We are the covenant people of God. And his covenant of grace with us in Christ defines who we are. Just as this covenant defines how we understand Abram, our covenant, the covenant of grace with Christ, defines who we are. And this is why we desire to apply the word of God to our lives. It's why we desire to live holy lives in response to what God has done for us, in, for us in Christ. And so as we prepare to leave this place today, I want us to take away two specific points of application that we can take into the world with us. First, we need to remember that Christ is our reward. It is not a reward that you have earned, but a gift, a gift that you have been given. We live in a world that is obsessed with what we can gather in this life. And we can so easily take our eyes off this truth that really, ultimately, Christ is our reward. For us, reward, the idea of reward becomes financial gain or personal happiness, and, and we seek those things out instead of relishing in what our true reward is. If we are going to make holiness a priority in our life, we need to understand that seeking Christ and his righteousness is of greater value than anything that this world can offer us. Abram made the choice to forsake the wealth he had from his conquests because he trusted God and believed that his true reward was not earthly gain, but instead his true reward was in the promise of God. And our second application is found in what we read about Abram. What did he do? He believed God. In the face of plenty of reasons for Abram to have doubt, everything was stacked against him. But what did he do? He believed God anyway. The promise was far off. He had sojourned for years, wondering if he would ever have offspring. And yet he trusted God. He was old. His wife was barren. She was too old too. But yet he believed God. He trusted God. He believed the promise. 
And I know many times, for us, the promise seems far off also. At times it feels as though this promise of heaven and and a restored kingdom of God seems so far off. We struggle in this life with, with difficulties. We struggle with sin. And we wonder if all of this that we believe is true. Is what God has done for me in Christ really sufficient to save me from my sin? Well, we need to trust the promise. The temptation from Satan, the temptation from the world, is to doubt the sufficiency of what God has done for us in Christ. It will try to get us to doubt the promise. Now, we hear doubts in our head coming at us from every angle. You aren't good enough for God. If there is a God, why is there so much terrible going on in the world? What good does it matter to believe this stuff anyway? It comes from every direction. All these things come come flying at us. But in the face of those doubts, we are called to believe God. We saw today, Abram clearly had his doubts. But what did God do? God confirmed the covenant with him. And as the covenant people of God, we have signs of the promise that God has given to us. We know that while we were dead in our sin, Christ died for us. And as confirmation of that truth, we can look to the waters of our baptism to know that God has forgiven us and that he has been faithful to us. And we can partake in the Lord's Supper as a visual reminder and a sign and a seal of the covenant of grace that he has made with us. And so as we step out into the world this week, the call in our lives is to believe God. Look to his covenant and his covenant faithfulness and trust that through his word and spirit he is working in you, that he might lead you and help you grow in faith and holiness as you desire to serve our covenant God in his world. And so as we think about this passage and we see Abram lying asleep and the God of heaven and earth, the one that owes us nothing, passes through the halves of those animals and says to Abram, I've got it. It's on me. Remember that truth. When you struggle this week, God makes a promise and he keeps it. In Christ, we have confidence and assurance of salvation. Rest in that truth. Amen.